Say It Loud Network presents Corner Table Talk. Welcome, everybody, to Corner Table Talk. And today I am so happy to have as my guest the lovely and talented Tracy Ellis Ross. Hey, Tracy. Hi, Brad. It's so good to see you. I wish it was in person, but this is pretty good. I know. Thank you for having me. So everybody knows who you are, award-winning actress, producer, activist, CEO has has been added um, to your uh, to your long list of uh, of accomplishments with Pattern Beauty, and even your hair care line is like winning awards. This is ridiculous, Tracy. You, you, you just can't stop. Um, so you've been honored all over the place. If I were to continue to read, that would be all we'd get to um, today. But I want to talk to you. I don't just want to list your accomplishments, although. They are many, and I do want to name a few. So, style icon in 2020. Um, I thought that that was that was pretty cool, and all Golden Globe winner nominations for everything. I mean, it's just it goes on and on, Tracy. So, we start things off with what I call short order questions, just easy mm. questions for you. And I've read a few places where you've answered some of these things. So, I had to work to come up with some things that uh, just weren't the, the same things everybody else has asked you. So. I'm going to try that. So anyway, what what time of day do you feel most inspired creatively? Hmm. My favorite time of day is between three and six. I don't know why, but I seem to feel the most in my skin, the most present. And um, like, I don't know. It's like my favorite time of day. It's my favorite time to eat. It's my favorite time to work. But I think the most inspiring time of day for me might be the quiet in the morning. Mm. I used to be like in high school, for example, I was a track runner. So I would get home from school and I was so tired that I would shower, eat dinner, go to bed. And I would wake up at five in the morning to do my homework before going to school. And it has proved in my life to be a productive hour. There's just a stillness that's happening everywhere. There's not a lot incoming and I can have um, really good inspirational thought because of my job, though, Brad, and waking up at five o'clock in the morning for work, sometimes that hour is just spent like dragging my feet to the shower. (laughs) I I can um, imagine. Yeah, but I I would say my most inspired time of day would be between six and nine in the morning. And then my favorite time of day would be between three and six p.m. Okay. I like, yeah, I'm a late afternoon. I I love the late afternoon. I I really do. I like right music, a little wine, you know, just that, that vibe, that mood. Yeah. And as I've, I've gotten older, I've noticed that I prefer to drink when the sun's up so that it doesn't affect my sleep. (laughs) (laughs) So the sugar as opposed to that, that's another story. But like, as opposed to before bed, like, you know, with dinner, like having a glass of wine, I don't like a glass of wine with dinner. I would prefer like an afternoon, like last of wine and then it's out of my system and, and I'm good. <laughs> Processing <laughs> sugar gets harder the older you get. <laughs> yes, it does, as, as does other things. Yes, that's um, true. So tell me, the quality that you most cherish in a friend. It's interesting. I think accountability ends up resulting in the safety and the trust. So somebody that feels like you can depend on them. Dependability and accountability. And it, it's funny because if I look at, by the way, Brad, all my best friends are exactly the same. It's still Samira. (laughs) Same best friends from all the years Mm -hmm. I've known you. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's we're the same kind of people where, you know, they're they're people I would put in my will trust with my um, my beloveds. And um, there's a sense of dependability, accountability and trust that is the basis of those friendships. And, you know, because you are a good friend and you've held on to your longtime friends, you know, I'm sure they've enjoyed this ride with you. (laughs) I've also enjoyed the ride with them. It's also mm-hmm. beautiful looking at my friends and seeing who they have become, mostly as human beings. I feel such, I don't know if pride's the right word, but so inspired by who my friends are as people, who they are as parents, who they are as friends, who they are as kids, because you know I'm at that age where our parents are aging and taking um, on that new relationship with your parents and what that feels like. And so seeing who my friends have become has been extraordinary. And having that, um, particularly through this pandemic, realizing um, the friends I have and the long time knowingness between us is so valuable uh, and invaluable. Like it's just something you can't describe to have that history with people. 
But yeah, it's been fun for them. And also they couldn't care less. (laughs) (laughs) Perfect. (laughs) Yeah, that's exactly the way it should be. (laughs) Yep. All right. So tell me, last time I saw you, you were kind of driving a a pretty fly ride, but I I won't identify the car, but I take it you like, (laughs) you like to drive. So Tracy, what's your, what's your favorite drive in LA? Well, to be honest, there's never a day I'm not working, Brad. Um, If you decide to be a CEO and an entrepreneur and a producer, (laughs) there's never a day you're not working. But I'll be honest as well. I don't like driving. I would really happily be driven everywhere. Um, I'm not driven everywhere, but I would happily be driven everywhere. I think if there's a ride I like to take, it would be from my house to my mom's house because I know where I'm going. (laughs) I know I'm going to mom's and I'm going to be like laying on the floor. We're a family that likes to lay on the floor. Like, I don't know what that's about, but all the kids, like everybody on the floor. So to me, it's like driving there to go do that. Got to get those Rosses and furniture, man. We don't seem to use the furniture. It seems it's strange, right? But we really and it's it's fascinating. But we really like the floor. (laughs) I I understand, actually. Um, Sorry. So then, New York. What's your favorite walk in New York City? I know you're a New Yorker. Central Park. It blows my mind every time I'm in there. The fact that in the middle of that concrete jungle, this extraordinary park is cared for, the architecture that's still in there, the nature, the foliage. Like I just, I had my reuniting with my dad um, last month and I I was one of the most special moments. Wow. What, boy, did my heart fill up in that after not seeing him for a year and all the fear that we had been through. And we walked around the reservoir in New York together and just walked and talked. And he explained every flower, every plant, the care that goes into them. He is if the park was his. Um, but but Central Park um, and the and the walks along Central Park on any end, like Central Park uh, South, um, Fifth Avenue, like no matter where you are, walking along the park is just glorious. Um, but any walk in New York is good. Yeah. I just New York really gives a good walk doesn't it? It does. It really does. I used to run around the uh, the reservoir in Central Park and uh, it was just such an inspirational run. You could see the buildings along yeah. Central Park West and just everywhere you look, there's just beauty. I, I, I love the park as well. Yeah. All right. Favorite Jackson 5 song that you sing loudly to when no one else is around? I'm, I mean, oh God, why can't I think of what that song is? What's the one where in the video he's like, he's going like this. He's, he's so teeny. Um, oh God, I don't not know what I want you song. back. Not maybe tomorrow. Not no. Keep going. Let's look it um, up. Let's look up Jackson Five songs. Yeah, we can do that. Yep, Google is our best friend. Best Jackson Five songs. I'll be there. I would say I'll I'm going to go with that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we- I'll take that. Oh, it's the we'll never can't say goodbye gets you though. I'm going to go with never can't say goodbye. That's what I'm going with. Never can't say goodbye. That's your final. That's that's, that's your final. That's my decision. final answer, okay. sir. We're not. Boom. We can't go I'm back. Just, we're not going back. Right. That's right. my final answer. Okay. Goes down in history. <laughs> <laughs> Last one of these. Your fondest childhood memory around food. <gasps> okay. My mom growing up used to make, she has not made this in years. She would make it, she would slice zucchini, tomatoes, zucchini, tomato, and put Parmesan cheese and Lipton onion soup mix mm-hmm. and bake it in the oven. I don't know what that dish was. I don't know what you call it, but it was so delicious. Um, it was sort of like a like an eggplant parmesan, but with no eggplant, and it was so good. And also, anything on my mom's plate is better than your plate. <laughs> so <laughs> you like, snatch I, off your mom's yes, plate. Yes, I okay. don't. And my seat at the dinner table was always all through growing up was always right next to my mom, and both of us used the salt shaker a lot, and we're both right-handed, so it was a constant. We never thought to get two salt shakers, <laughs> but it was constant. Constant, like, pass the salt, pass the salt, pass the salt, because we would both sit, I would sit it on the right-hand side, and so she couldn't get to it. And, um, but anything on her plate was better seasoned and just, like, perfectly, just perfect, even if it was the same thing on your plate. So, um, my mom's a great cook. Is she? Yeah. So, while she's busy talking, you're just busy snatching things off of her plate and looking at her intently. Yeah, yes, and I, there's, I can, there's a, yeah, you can see me doing that. I can picture that, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so, let's dive in. I'm sure that you hate how we met stories, um, but I'm going to tell one anyway. So this is this is. Are you 
going to tell the how we met? I'm going to tell the how we met. This yep. is the best story. Okay, <laughs> so I'm on the friend. beach. Oh, my God. I'm, this I'm is the best story. in the Bahamas. It's Harbor <laughs> Island. It's the Pink Sands. It's a beautiful hotel. This is back in the 90s before we all knew who Tracy was about to be. And uh, so I'm out on the beach and I see this beautiful woman make her way down to the water and go deep, just deep enough, waist deep. So she bends over and we all know she has you know, long, beautiful hair. She dunks her hair in the water and then flips it back up over her head like a movie. And I'm watching this and I'm saying, hmm, <laughs> that looks interesting. She looks interesting. I'm going to have to mosey on over there. There's nobody else. We're, we're the only two black people at the Pink Sands. So we might as well get to know each other. Anyway, long story short, I introduce myself to Tracy. We end up taking a long walk on the beach. The Pink Sands is a, is a beautiful hotel with a series of bungalows on, on the beach. Great little spot. And uh, we spent some time together. We start, we, we had a great talk and we went to get something to eat. Yeah, you and drove, we, 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 drove like we drove off the property of the hotel and you brought me to some really yummy restaurant and we mm -hmm. played pool. You remember that? I remember yes. all that. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, we did. And um, yeah, and it was it was cool, you know, and, and uh, I just felt like we had a connection in and we've been friends ever since. So that was that was 1990 something. So, Tracy, when you knowing now where you are and, and you know, all that you've been able to to do, I mean, you graduated from Brown. It wasn't like you came, you know, um, you know, we all know who your mom is and, and some of your background. But, you know, you had you had an uphill climb. And I remember meeting you then and things weren't for sure. You know, you didn't know exactly what was going to happen. They weren't it wasn't mm -hmm. a crystal ball. So what what would Tracy today look back and tell Tracy that met Brad on the beach in 1995? What what would you share with her? Some some don't worry, it's going to be okay. Or what 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 kind of words of wisdom might you tell your younger self? Um, I'm going to answer that, and then please remind me to go back to our first meeting because I'm going to add a couple of fun details to that because okay. um, it's fun. But I think you know it's so funny that vacation was the first vacation I went on by myself that was the first of many because I do that now all the time to think back that I was in my early 20s and was already somebody who was bold enough to travel on her own is hilarious to me um, and it was the first vacation I paid for myself out of money I had worked and earned um, and I was very proud I felt very proud of what I had accomplished at that moment but it is true I had no idea everything felt like I, I have no idea how you get from who you imagine yourself to be, um, the dreams that you have, what you imagine accomplishing and how you get there. And so looking back, I mean, oh gosh, this was before Girlfriends, mm. before Lyris' Lounge, before moving to LA. I think I would say to that young gal, <laughs> um, hang in there, mm -hmm. hang in there. And in the moments when you start to turn on yourself, thinking that it is something you are doing wrong, if you could just be gentler with yourself, because I think of the the journey, the up and down, you know, even after girlfriends, like there was no there was no guarantee. Like I, I didn't I thought the pearly gates of Hollywood were going to open. They did not. They were not stacks of scripts at my door after girlfriends. And um, I am only now hearing I recently heard, for example, I was interviewed by I will leave the names out, but a manager that after girlfriends had hip pocketed me, which means he hadn't his agent hadn't agreed to take me on, but he uh, was a high powered manager at a big management firm. That was like a dream for me. I was like, if you can get at a management firm like that, like my career could keep going. It was a big deal that he had decided to hip pocket me. And we did that for a month or so. And then he said he couldn't take me on. And I recently was interviewed by him for something. And he told me the story of what actually happened behind the scenes. Now I got dropped by him and was devastated. I was like, you know, I, there was no other manager that wanted to take me. There were no jobs on the horizon. Like I didn't know what was happening. And of course it was, you know, um, as a woman, as a black woman and as myself, I'm one of those people. It's like, what did I do wrong? What can I do differently? How can I be better? How can I be more? What else is, you know, what else am I supposed to do? And he told me that the management company said to him, 
stories about black girls and black women do not sell and nobody wants them. So you pick one black female client and you drop the rest because we're not paying the bill on that, basically. Now, had I known that then, I don't think I would have taken it personally and perhaps it would have been enough fuel for me to start doing what I'm doing now, which is making space for others, changing the systems in this industry, continuing to push to open up the real estate and to create new tables if those tables don't want to include us in them or whatever those things are. But I didn't have that information. And it's not to say that I would change the journey, but I think that the times that I raked myself over the coals and took responsibility in places and for things that were more about the systems problems than my own personal foibles, I think I would have had a little bit of more, a little bit more joy in my experience. And it, it would have been a, a softer road um, to get here. But I also wouldn't change any of it. You know, even on the road with the, with the hair company, it took me 10 years to get the, this company off the ground. 10 years. And every no that I got, every laugh in my face, every why you, every this doesn't make sense, every who cares, every whatever those things were, I would take the hit and then clarify my vision, my mission, um, the promise of the brand, what I wanted the brand to be. Um, and I learned that because I did have a lot of disappointments um, and it didn't just go easily. It, nothing was handed to me. I mean, you, you know, you've known me for all these years. It was not it was not like you're Diana Ross's daughter. Here you go. Like none of that no, happened. And, and I remember, actually, you know, you, you got girlfriends and but leading even leaving leading up to girlfriends, there was, you know, it, it wasn't like a blast off. There was still, you know, a, a few stops and starts. And of course, I'm not aware of everything that that happened with you. But even post girlfriends, there wasn't this. I mean, everybody that watched that show that loved that show knew you were a star, knew that you should have a bigger platform, except Hollywood. <laughs> And it took them a minute, you know, to, to catch on. And it's ironic to me that the show that ABC would finally say yes to is blackish. And let me tell um, you something that was so hilarious to me. <laughs> I was like, I finally make it to ABC and the show's called Blackish. I was like, what is that? This is insane. I was like, been trying to get on the networks and now networks don't even mean anything right. anymore. Do you know what I mean? Like, it's the most bizarre journey. But yeah. 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 But before we go too far, so tell, embarrass me. Tell okay. me, or if you're going to, tell me the story. No, right? I maybe know the one that you're going to tell, but if not, I'll tell the other. No, no. I won't, I won't tell that one. There's okay. no need. We can, right. we can keep that as, as our okay. hilarious ridiculousness. But I will say this. So I saw you before you saw me. And I came from the airport and my room wasn't ready. So I had on my airport clothes and I sat down at a table for lunch. You know, that's what they do when your room's not ready. They put you to have some food. So I sat down at the table and I, I looked over and I was like, oh my God. I was like, who's that man? He's gorgeous. I was like, oh boy, this is a problem. I was like, oh my goodness, how uncomfortable. Um, so I was like, that's okay. I just come from the airport. I, I don't, I don't, whatever, whatever. So then I go to my room, I do whatever. And then I, when I decided to go to the beach, Brad, I looked down and I saw your sneakers because I had noticed which sneakers you had on while you were having lunch and your sneakers were left on the stairs going down to the beach. And I was like, that man is on the beach. That man is on the beach. Where? Because there was no one on that beach. No, there was not a person at that resort, it seemed. And so, um, so yes, it was your sneakers that were your telltale sign. And I literally have that the image of your sneakers in my head. And then we play pool and blah, blah, blah. And we've been friends ever since. Ever since. Yeah, it's been yeah. great. So, Tracy, you mentioned just recently getting on a plane for the first time during the pandemic and, and you went to see your dad. Um, how yeah. was that for you? How was the experience of finally getting up the nerve to like, you know, it, it's safe enough and, and, you know, going to see your dad? What, what, what was that like for you? Well, I would not have considered even getting on a plane were it not for work. I had a job that um, I couldn't say no to. And I just was, I was like, oh, this is one of those jobs I dreamt of all those years ago. Like, I, I'm, I want this job. And I had gotten them to move the date of the job to after my second shot. So I would have not gotten on the plane if I wasn't vaccinated. I don't think I could have done it um, because I happened to be one of those people that was full on lockdown and terrified. I did not leave my house. I didn't go to the market. I, ha I didn't go anywhere. We didn't. My whole family was the same. We all really respected each other's space and safety, particularly my mom. Um, and all of us are here in LA, but we really stayed apart. And if we saw each other, we were outside. We didn't hug like none of those things. And I went to work. I did my job. But people are like, you were with people at work. I'm like, it was like military precision. Everybody was separated at work. Like there was no, the, we were one of the most successful shows. We did 22 episodes. We started 
started at the beginning of August and we didn't have any cases. We were like, like by the book. So getting on the plane was terrifying <laughs> to me. Uh, I had an astronaut helmet that had an air filtration system in it. I double masked. I would not go to the bathroom. I wiped down my area and put a seat cover. And I will tell you that the first 10 to 15 minutes when I sat down on the plane, I just couldn't stop crying. Not out of fear of getting COVID, but I had not been in close proximity with other people that I didn't know in an, in over a year. Mm -hmm. And that in and of itself was just really a lot to take in. And I think this re-emerging for everybody is, is going to be a process that we all have to make our way through. I was talking to Samira and her son. Um, her son Lex is five and you know, and my brother and his two kids, my brother Ross has two kids, by the way. Um, they all have kids. Everybody has kids with me. But um, the kids are so attached to their parents. Can't leave the house. And I'm thinking if the kids are having that kind of anxiety, I'm having my own version in these other things, you know. So it's just a process. And I'm trying to be really gentle with myself and other people and stay compassionate for everybody as we make sense of this. And I can't even wrap my head around the fact that it's been a year. I know. And the range of emotion last year just brought I mean, I, you know, talk about crying and, and you know, anger and, and confusion oh and anxiety. I'm, I'm curious, though, you mentioned hugging. And do you think that that changes the, the way people will interact now that we've been through this pandemic and hopefully you're coming out of the other end? But I don't know how anxious I feel to, to hug people. And, you know, I am all over the hugging, Brad. I literally am like, are you vaccinated? Have you had your second shot? And then I'm like, get bring Make it in, okay. like bring it in. And I have to say that we are forever. I hope we are forever changed. And I hope that this feeling of everything is new and the deep gratitude of some of the simplest things remains mm -hmm. because it feels like I, you know, now I'm like a crazy lady. Like I went on a plane again. I went to Cabo by myself. <laughs> and, um, you know, I was there and I was like, everything just felt incredible. Like for the whole year, I wouldn't order takeout food. Like I only cooked my own food. Mm -hmm. And so even like, you know, ha ordering from one of my favorite restaurants, it's just like, oh, oh, this tastes so amazing. You know what I mean? Like, just like going back to some of the things that I loved um, feels really special. So yeah, I, I would agree. You know, you played a pretty prominent role. You were, um, you hosted the second night of the, the DNC. And it was at a time when that we all know how important an election uh, that was, but it was at a time when Everybody was just hoping that we were going to find our way uh, through what we had been experiencing. And, you know, I, I know enough about you to know that you take good care of yourself. Self-care is a big thing for you. And I would have to imagine, Tracy, that going into a moment like that, knowing how many people are watching, knowing what's at stake, you had to have been centered, like like really like deep in some kind of a special place to be able to stay step up on that stage and have the presence that you did and grab the moment in the way that you did. Can you reflect on that that moment a little bit? Yeah, it was I was terrified and also really humbled to show up and be of service in that way. And it took a lot of preparation and a lot of pushing and a lot of, you know, pushing to make sure that what I was saying felt true to me and like it was genuinely being of service to the moment that we were in and sort of uh, being a facilitator for all of us into this political moment um, and making sure that we understood not only our power as people, um, but the importance of using that power and and what it meant and why in every election, but particularly this one, um, we had to show up, you know. Um, and so it felt for me like uh, an evolution of who I have been becoming and how I have found my political voice and my socially active voice and and using that currency to actually engage people. And it was, uh, you know, it was also the first time I had been. I, when was that? When was the DNC? It was like August. Was it August? It was before yeah. I went back to work. I think it was mm -hmm. before I went back to work. So I think it was, it was August. The, yeah, it was the first thing and first place I went. And I was so it was also like I had to go somewhere to do it. And I was just like, Wah! my mind was blown. I was like, I don't know. I can do that. It seemed terrifying. And 
Um, but I, I also thought it was so wonderfully done, the DNC. Mm-hmm. It really, um, particularly in what we were in and experiencing, it connected us to each other um, as a country and as citizens of this country in a way that I just thought was really well done. And I was so honored to be a part of it and and there. But wow, I mean, we we really have been through a lot. We were all so raw, you know, um, George Floyd's murder had happened. There were, you know what I mean? There was, we were, we were in this wave and, you know, the shift of power into the Biden-Harris administration brought up so much grief of what we had been in for four years. You know, I think of all the things we have seen with our eyes and experienced unprecedented time, but in all these different ways, you know, as the the soul of this country is like wrestling with itself, you know, um, yet again, as we try and walk towards a better way of being, because this shit ain't working. You know what I mean? Like, like, I mean, you know, uh, so, and each of these moments, like, I feel like what we're in right now is like evidence that we must, each of us, show up as the most civically engaged individuals we have ever been, or it is going to go the wrong direction. We like we have seen that. And this is our country and we have to keep showing up for it. Or I I don't otherwise I do lose hope. You know, Mm -hmm. to me, the action is what Staying in action, staying in right action, in in next indicated action, in following those people that do have the right information, asking questions, having a sense of curiosity about it, but also a sense of responsibility is the only thing that doesn't leave me in a hopeless state because it's it's really devastating um, what is occurring in this country. Yeah, you know, and... I think in the form of a question, I guess. So Barack got elected. The Obamas, you know, really kind of ushered in a, a sense of, you know, certainly pride. And, and I just love what they stood for. I, you know, it just it just felt like I wanted to move to Washington, D.C. when he I mean, that it just really affected me like that. I wanted to open a restaurant there and just be a part of it all. And then we had what we had this this past four years. And do you think that that what we've gone through was necessary to inspire what has been inspired as a result. I mean, certainly we could have done without the death and, and you know, the, the devastation that's been caused. But did we get complacent? I don't know. Uh, I didn't. But mm-hmm. um, but I also, you know, it's like when you decide to clean out your closet, sometimes the room gets messier than like it all looks like, oh, like, you know, I don't know if maybe it's sort of like this is you know, like that's part of our country, like what we were just in. You know what I mean? That that that's here. So I, I don't know. I don't know if we got complacent. I don't know if it had to happen. It did happen. That's for sure. You know, um, and we must respond to it and not pretend it's not here. But I also know that, you know, not everybody has the luxury to get up and not even luxury, but the wherewithal, like people are trying to survive. If you're at the pointed end of racism, sexism, you're trying to get up and keep a roof over your head. You know what I mean? Like the system, the oppression is is at your face. Mm-hmm. Um, so I find that, you know, whenever and whoever, and, and that in and of itself is resistance. You surviving, you thriving um, in and of itself is an example of freedom and reverberates out as an energy that changes things. Um, but there is real work to be done. Um, policy work, um, cultural work, you know, there's, we have evidence like culture influences policy. So the stories that we tell matter, you know, um, how we tell stories, who tells the stories, those things matter, which is something that's come into play both in my company pattern and also um, in my production deal and, and the, the projects that I'm developing and making sure that, you know, the development team all looks like uh, is, is represented of who's telling the story and the crew and that we are pulling each other in in all these ways and spaces and places. Um, so I think I don't know that anyone can be complacent right now. But I do know that we are in a divided space and people are dying. People are dying. Yeah. Um, And, and you know, you you bring up a really good point. You know, it's not just that the story gets told, your story gets told, but who tells, who gets to tell the story really shapes the narrative and and how close to the truth it stays. And as you rise in prominence, you know, I think the more people that you bring around you, I I know you're going to, you're going to be a champion for that. Um, You know, I recently listened to um, thanks to you. 
you a, a really interesting podcast called The Tightrope. Uh, oh, yes. Dr. Right. With Dr. Cornell West and uh, I guess an old friend of yours, Tricia Rose, who also mm -hmm. a, teaches up at Brown, where you your alma mater. And um, I was really just so much I got out of that, Tracy. But one of the things I wanted to ask you about, because you were talking about, you know, hearing, finding different ways to I'm going to find the quote. Mm -hmm. um, you said use of knowledge, let language be a tool, knowledge that is heart based in a way that allows us to create frames in our life. This idea of creating frames in our life, it's a little bit more than compartmentalization, right? What you're talking mm. about there. Can you can you explain that a little bit? Yeah. Um, Dr. Kimberly Crenshaw talks a lot about how it's very difficult to hold facts if there isn't a frame for them. And I think so often, particularly because of systemic racism and the systems of oppression that have been in place for so long, there are real blind spots around particular areas that there's no frame for. Um, like the easiest example I use is the term black girl magic. Black women and girls have been extraordinary forever, have been all things to all people for since the beginning of time, have been at the center of economic, political, um, cultural revolutions in this country. And yet our contribution is never really centered in the result. You look at election cycles, whatever those things are. And somehow the term black girl magic has given people a frame with which to put our wonder, you know? And so I think it's often our responsibility. I was talking about narrative or I've taken it on as my responsibility to always name and claim the frame for the narrative so that people know where to place it. For example, the first time I was nominated for the Emmy, it was the first time in how many years, like 30 some odd years, a black woman had been nominated in the lead actress in a comedy category, which is absurd and is evidence to me of systemic problems because black women have been being the leads in our lives forever. So why has the art not reflected that if art is meant to be a reflection of life? And so I made it my mission during that entire press cycle to constantly name not what the problem was, but what it needed to be and put the frame around it for everybody. Like black women are the leads in our lives. Like that's what we are. That's who we are. I stand on the shoulders of so many. I stand shoulder to shoulder with so many. Um, and this is not about me. This is about the collective in this moment. And so I, I always encourage people to name the context. And that brings me back to what I was saying earlier. I didn't know because of the privilege that I come from, the privilege of fame, of money, of light skin, of beauty, of all of these different privileges that have created particular blind spots for me in my life. I was, um, I took a lot of things really personally. I thought it was me. It was me. It was me. I didn't know that there, you know, I, because of how I was educated, my education, my, the fame I come from, the money I come from, like, I didn't realize that a lot of this racism was as prevalent as it was. And then you, you move out into the world. So I often think to myself, the frame is about creating context for people. And we are as black and brown people so often decontextualized. Like we, we don't have a context for our experience because the system doesn't make space for it. So I take it on my own responsibility to keep naming that. Um, and I think it helps people to understand a humanity in a different way and in a more authentic way. Did, that, did I unpack that okay? Yeah, perfectly. And, you know, just to take it a little bit further, creatively in the characters that you portray, and I, and I listened to it in part of this podcast, you went into a couple of little funny characters that you do, but you talked about how even through characters, you can express things just by virtue of your portrayal of an image of someone that you have in your head that says even more than the words say, and you're trying to articulate a particular point of view. And just tell, tell me a little bit about that. Yeah. You know, I always, I think of like three different things when I'm playing a role. I mean, you know, I'm, 
Bo Johnson and, and is the best example. And I've played her for a long time on Blackish. But I often think of like, is this true for the character? And then how does this look in the canon in the context of television? So um, should I like, why? Why am I doing this? Why am I carrying laundry in this scene? And is it appropriate for this scene? And even if it is, how does it look in the context of black women on television or a wife on television? And is it necessary for that? Because even if it works for this moment, we are etched in time when we do something for television. And how does it play into the larger canon of how we are seen? And one of the things that was really important to me with Bo Johnson was that I was bringing a woman to the forefront that was thriving, not just surviving, that this was a relationship that was anchored in love and like that these two people not only loved each other, but they liked each other and that our comedy wasn't coming from rolling our eyes at each other, but actually from who we were as characters. And that me, my character was not just your typical sitcom wife, that my experience and my point of view was based in me and not in relationship to my husband. So I was a wife, a mother, a doctor, all of these things, not just the wife. So my storyline, my point of view, and the way that manifests, Brad, is like, you know, it's a little challenging for the writer sometimes because I'm like, but how does Bo feel about that? Why is Bo doing that? And I, even though the story is not told through Bo's eyes, I like to make sure that no matter how little or a lot I'm saying on screen, that I, you can tell Bo has a life outside of that moment so that I'm bringing the fullness and the wholeness of who she is into that moment. And I try and do that with all the characters that I play. And it's what I'm interested in developing is human beings that have a wholeness to them that continue to break down these um, limiting ideas ideas of who we are as people. You know, you've also said that um, you have a gift for moving feelings, that you can yeah. take real big feelings and move them and that you're not afraid to sit with people and their vulnerability and say, you know, I, I hear you and I see you in that pain and I thank you. What an honor that you shared that with me. So a couple of things come to mind when I read this. And, you know, I, it, this reminds me of a, of a friend of mine who's well known and who will often sit with me and have dinner and maybe engage the table next to us and ask about their kids, where they went to school, where they, I mean, have this really like heart to heart talk and then it's over and he moves on. And whereas if he didn't put an end to it there, he would have a million friends at his door for someone like yourself who anyone would want to buddy up and be friends with Tracy. Is that part of what you're talking about that you will be with someone in that moment and you will give them the space and the attention and the eye to eye contact and fully engage. But then you you have to be able to move through that past that, because if you continue to take everybody's pain on and sit with it, I guess, much like a therapist, if therapists did that, they'd be batshit crazy, right? Yeah. Do you, is it, am I close in, in that an analogy or am um, I missing something? I, no, I don't think you missed something. I um I don't know that I've ever thought of it that way, but I I am also a really boundaried person. Like I really do have boundaries um, and know where I end and other people begin. I think my my superpower around feelings is also, you know, there's a there's a depth to where I'm willing to let things move, you know, um, and I feel things deeply. And I think it's one of the aces in my deck. I think it's why I'm good at what I do. And I also think it's why I navigate through the world in a really authentic way that is connected to other humans human beings. I'm a heart-based person. I'm a, a sort of body and soul-based person, not a mind-based person. Um, but yeah, that's interesting. I mean, I do take stuff home, but yeah, I'm, I'm good at when I say moving them through, like, yeah, it's present and then it moves through. You know, I, I try not to, it's not even try. Once I've made sense of it and it's been processed, unpacked and sort of um, broken down into bite-sized pieces, then everything goes where it goes. And then we move on to the next moment. But, you know, I feel things big. I feel joy big. I feel sad big, anger, um, fury. I mean, you know, I did my TED talk on the wisdom of fury um, and women listening to that. I feel like I need to do another one on rage because the racial reckoning and the, the wrestling of the soul of America around race and what is emerging now in this divisive time and from this last administration and the just disgusting display of hate 
hatred that exists um, ignites a rage in me um, because I don't understand how people can justify some of the things they say. I'm like, what are you talking about? Like, that's a person. Like, a human being was killed, like, for no reason. You know what I mean? Like, I get it, like, it ignites this rage in me that I think a lot of us are feeling. It's a combination of I go from this rage um, to just like a deep sadness that seems like inconsolable. Like it just it, it, it doesn't feel like there's a container deep enough or wide enough to hold um, the hurt and the of, of what people are experiencing um, at the hand of oppression. Uh, it's really upsetting to me. But yes, I do. I move feelings. And um, and I think that being able to move feelings is really important as an artist. Um, and it is the they are the the my feelings are the seeds of my intelligence. Mm. It sounds like the epitome of mental discipline, really, you know, hmm. because interesting. Yeah, you really you have a muscle there, obviously, and, and you're able to use that muscle as as you need to. So um, I got to work hmm. mine a little bit because I get stuck. <laughs> I, I get a little stuck. Um, but I have know, to say, Brad, that that's a you know, um, it is a skill that I have honed and crafted and worked and in, you know, and my job asks it of me. But mm -hmm. also culturally, men are not given the space to learn that you haven't grown you you grew up at a time and in a world where boys weren't supposed to cry you know what I mean so like it, it is something that you do have to cultivate and I think it would you know the fact that you even say that means you're in the right place because how would you know that you know what I mean like I always say people like you come by that honestly but that's what also interested me when you were talking about the vocabulary Tracy because I find even amongst my men friends the and, and you know some articulate guys we can't can't find the words. We know what we want to say. We know we, what we're feeling, but we don't have the ability to locate the words that touch the emotion that convey it. You know, especially my black friends. You know, we we're getting better yeah. because this this yeah. year really ripped a lot of us wrong. We've got most of my you know black friends have we have sons, and so everything that happened with the police touched us so deeply oh. that you know we 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 could not we had no choice but to be raw with one another over the phone because most. Most of us weren't we weren't able to see each other, but it was that kind of year. But anyway, to to your point, I but, just feel but like wait, the, but uh, before mm -hmm. you before you move on from there, um, mm -hmm. how old is Bryce right now? By the way, thirty two. <laughs> <laughs> Insanity. Yeah, I know. Yeah. Bought a house oh, last year and uh wow. yeah, he's, okay. He's well congratulations on having a, a thirty-two year old young man son. Well, um you. and what I will say about the vocabulary and the language, it started as very rudimentary for me. I remember sitting in a therapist's office and there was one of those ridiculous posters on the wall with babies' faces, and it had it was like a big one, and it had all the different names of feelings. And I was like, wow, I thought there were three. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, I was like, this is nuts. You know, so I do think learning that vocabulary and the one tip that I will give you that I think is really helpful in finding the language is asking, uh, look, asking your body where the feeling is, where the feeling lives. Is it in your heart? Is it in your stomach? Is it in your back? Is it in your neck? Is it in your jaw? And then asking, literally having a dialogue, even if it's not out loud, of what is the feeling? Because if you can start not saying I'm depressed, I'm anxious, I'm whatever, but it feels tight. It feels heavy. It feels wet. It feels like if you can go into that, which is a lot easier from a sensation place, if you're asking yourself where in your body it is, you can start to walk your way towards what the language would be to describe it. Well, I think I read somewhere that uh, if you weren't doing what you do, you might be a therapist. And, you know, I, I'm afraid to ask what your rates might be. But <laughs> I get a friends and family discount if, if I need another session. Please. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so um so Tracy, you you overcame, you know, I, I remember in fact, I don't know if you remember, but I connected you with a, a buddy of mine, John yeah. McLean, yes. who has Marvin Gaye's old recording studio in Hollywood. And it's a and it's really a cool space. It's you know, like a museum to Marvin and there's uh, been a lot of interesting people that have been in that building, including you. And he gave you the space. I asked him if he wouldn't mind, you know, connecting with you and, and you agreed, you, you went in there, you were curious about, you know, X, 
exercising that part of your talent. You went in and you did something, you sang, and um, I, I never heard anything that came of it. But more recently, um, obviously with the movie that, that uh, you just did, you actually sang and you sang beautifully. But the pressure that had to have been on you to, to, to sing publicly like that, you talked about, you know, once you've reached a certain height, you realize how far you can fall. Did you actually think that people would, would like attack you and, and take you down for, for having your own voice? Yes. I mean, there is nothing, the, the irrational or rational, whatever it was, it was so scary. Um, and I will say thank you, Brad, because you were one of the people. And that was when I was 30. That was 18 years ago. Wow. Um, it was so 2930 was when I, that was the first time I was like, you know, okay, second time. First time was in high school. I did a little singing at a talent show. And then I was like, no, this is too scary. Um, and then again, when I was 2930, and thanks to you, you, introduced me to John and, and I did record two songs. I recorded Stormy Weather and You Go to My Head so I could hear what I sounded like. And then I shut it down again. It was too scary. My mom is Diana Ross and the idea in my head that I could be compared to her, that I would embarrass myself, I have no idea. I just couldn't, couldn't get past the fear. And when this movie came along 18 years later, so I was 47 years old, I think when the movie came along and I went after it because I was like, I'm ready. I'm ready. I'm ready. I'm ready. And I'm one of those people that I don't get afraid leading up. And then I do the thing and I like jump off the cliff. And then on my way down, I'm like, what the fuck did I just do? <laughs> I'm like, that was so dumb. <laughs> like, and I'm not joking. And it's really bad because you can't take it back. And you're just right, like, right. so then I go into like this tailspin of shame of like, I'm gonna be obliterated they're gonna rip me apart like what have i done what am i thinking and it was the most liberating experience of my life i felt like i gained access to all of me and i would love to keep doing some more singing i mean i wasn't bad brad you weren't I, bad tracy you rocked it and in fact the person who first brought my attention to the to the song was john mcclain he said have kidding. you heard tracy sing and i said oh no i i, I wanted and he was like man she she can actually blow so oh my God. Uh, you have to tell yeah. him I say hi. And, I will. Um, I will. I that will is so that. crazy. Yeah, I charted. I was on the adult contemporary charts, Brad. I went to 14. Ain't bad. That ain't bad. Not bad for a, a you bad. know, what did my mom say yesterday? She, my mom said something like, you're in your early 40s. I was like, oh, no, mom, we, we're past there now. I'm 48. I was like, we're we're in the upper 40s. <laughs> mm-hmm. So You were always before. 12 years older than me. You're 12 years older than me? Who, me? You're talking Excuse to me? Excuse me. Tw- are you 12 years younger than me? Are you talking to me? <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm not talking to you. I'm definitely not talking to you. <laughs> I am I am 64. You're 64. Yeah, that's I that 48, 58. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, we'll, we'll give it. We'll, we'll say 10 or 12, somewhere in that range. Yeah. That's fine. Yeah, yeah. that works. Okay. <laughs> Before I let you go, um, yeah. I have a couple of more things I want to talk to you about. So, and I want to, you know, first say thank you, Tracy, because, you know, through your, the, the time that I've known you, you know, you've always shown up at places. I've been in the restaurant industry my whole life. When we first met, I had Georgia. You became a regular at Georgia. Uh, then I went and opened the Sunset Room and you came, you actually came to the opening and, you know, you, you complimented me that night and it just stayed with me. Um, usually I remember the bad things that people say to me about me, but in this case, I remember the good things. So there's my mental discipline at work. Um, <laughs> but you complimented me on what I had on. And, you know, I, I'm not a fancy dresser. I, I wear what I'm, what I'm comfortable in, but I just remembered just being made to feel like seen by you in that room. It was, you know, it was a huge space, a lot of people, a lot of activity, but you took the time to say something really sweet to me. You came, you showed up, you all also came to BLT when I had the, the state place on Sunset, Willie Jane in Venice. And I remember seeing you just before Blackish, uh, you know, uh, was, was and post happening. And beam. Yeah, and Post and Beam. Yep. Mm-hmm. So, you know, just thank you. You've been a good friend and doing this show. Obviously, I'm not Jimmy Kimmel. This is a podcast done by your old pal. And here you are once again, you know, showing up. So I think that says a lot about who you are as a, as a person. So I wanted to make sure I got that out and, and thanked you properly. 
Uh, well, thank you for asking me. I also love seeing your evolution um, and, and ever growth. And also, I remember what you were wearing. You did look spiffy and great. And also, you are the master of lighting. Oh. Your your restaurants were always like, everybody looked gorgeous. Like, it was just like you you had the lighting to a T. It was a, a real thing. So, a, a couple of restaurants, you could maybe give them some pointers. <laughs> a little lighting tips, too. <laughs> a little lighting tips, yeah. Yeah, yeah that's the easiest thing to do. It's just everything on a dimmer, you know? You can at least yeah, soften it do use the right bowl. Lastly, I found out about this uh, rapper in Great Britain. Uh, his name is Swiss, and they started what they call Black Pound Day. And every first Saturday of the month, folks in Great Britain are encouraged to support a Black-owned business, uh, Black-owned restaurant, Black-owned small business. And the store owners and restaurant owners are saying that this has had a profound impact on their sales. And all of this, of course, has been triggered by, you know, what what happened around the world during the protests of 2020 and a different level of awareness and the support that uh, Black-owned businesses require and need. Um, and I was curious, do you think something like that could work here? Do you think that there could be a Buy Black Day? Uh, it's interesting. I think there is a Buy Black movement that's happening here as well. I think all of these pieces are needed in order to um, create equity in our community and balance the scales in a way that um, have lasting effect and change um, uh, change our sense of safety and freedom um, and opportunity. But I think it's more than that. You know, I, I often say when I'm speaking to other CEOs, etc., it's not just about Buy Black. It's also where you spend your money in all aspects. It's changing what is on the shelves. It's not just about a day. It's about changing our practices. And I explained to people that DEI, not DNI, diversity, equity, and inclusion is not about sales. It's not about checking a box. It's about the love of humanity. Um, and I think people need to change their mindset and understanding about that. And it will help to shift how we look at equity um, in this country. Diversity and inclusion you know, is just like, hey, come give me, a, you know, it's like, it's like this, this concept of mentorship that, mm -hmm. yeah, I mean, it, its intention is really good, but does it have the effect that we are looking for? Is it actually effective in balancing the scale? Is it actually effective in creating equity in communities that have systemically been left out um, and have been pushed out? So I think Buy Black is incredibly important. Um, and I think it is helpful. There's evidence of that that you say is happening mm -hmm. in the UK. Um, and it, 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 you know, there's a lot we got to do. Um, yeah. and, and it's not necessarily work that we have to do. Um, it's, it's a wake up on the other side of like, you know, your blind spots. Like there's way too many blind spots, some of which have been constantly played into in terms of systemic oppression. Right. But, yeah. and I agree with you, you know, just a couple of things though could, could certainly help. And, you know, again, relating it specifically to black owned restaurants and, and mm. as you're, you know, you continue to rise in prominence, you know, when, when, there's a location required, go to a black owned restaurant and pay a location fee and shoot at the restaurant. Yep. Black catering, get some of these small black owned restaurants to do some caterings on sets that, um, you know, I don't know what contractually, you know, you're, you're allowed, yeah. not allowed, but is that, is that something where there's an opportunity? I think so. I think absolutely. I think we all have to think in different ways. And, mm -hmm. you know, I often talk about the pipeline because you have to understand that a lot of these companies have not been given those opportunities in a regular way. So they don't have the same kind of experience. So offering these opportunities in different places to companies that haven't been given those opportunities might mean that there's a different balance in terms of supporting them in that journey of growth. And I think that's part of it. There are extraordinary businesses here. It's like, look where you don't always look, people. <laughs> like, and um, and I do think that there's way, ways to continue to actively support Black businesses, you know, and also hire, you know, instead of constantly hiring around numbers and evidence, hire talent. That's how you start changing the scale. That's how you start creating fundamental change. Mm -hmm. Couldn't agree more. Well, yeah. we're we're out of time. I know you have to run. Before I do let you go, as we've talked about, you know, this this past year has been, you know, an emotional roller coaster for us all. But I tell you, I have had some of my heartiest laughs this year with some of my, my buddies on the phone, and we have just treasured those moments of laughter. So Tracy, just, you know, you, you find humor in so much. What, what's the importance of a great sense of humor, a, a good laugh? 
Oh, it's everything. It's like magic. It's like, to me, it's evidence that God exists. Like I just, um, it opens your heart and it can, it's like the great connector. And it is one of the most delicious things and ways to connect with another person. And I think you can find humor in some of the darkest stuff. It's a, it's a point of identification and I try and do it as much as possible. Well, and, and you cause a lot of us to laugh. <laughs> uncontrollably and we thank you thank you for that tracy thank um, you so much for taking some time and i and i hope to have a meal with you soon and and share some more brad, stories and face the brad face. are you in miami where are you yeah in miami now i'll be back okay. in la soon to see bryce so maybe on a trip out there if you're around i'll, I'll give you a shout see if you're available. i would love it thank you yeah, this was too. so wonderful what a great conversation i'm so happy you're doing this and thank you thank you tracy Welcome, folks, to the segment of the show we call How We Move with Ambassador Shabazz. Tracy Ellis Ross, what a dynamic boss lady. Absolutely. Chip off her old block, yes. Yes. Um, Both both mother and father, notwithstanding, and a family, a large family of siblings, and all of them are resonant. You know, we know them differently. She's the one whose name you know, um, perhaps maybe in Evan as well, but certainly representative of all the uh, stock that from which she comes and the investment. Her mother, I've always heard, was an amazing mother, not just as an artist, but I'm talking about as a real maternal investor in her babies and the freedom that she has and the support. I've just always watched that over the decades and the comfort and freedom that we watched Tracy Ross share in terms of her journey. And you know that based on her roots, not just the fame, but real sound, familial, accessible mother, father, family self that she was able to do that and now is in a position to share that. That's key. And you know, it for so many, for too many, maybe it's Hollywood kids, kids of privilege, when not a lot is expected of them, it does not create the foundation to manage themselves, you know, going forward. And Tracy obviously had some pretty strong guidance from right. her mom and dad right. as a youngster. And the Ivy League education, of course, just a four year, going to a four year college is an accomplishment, but to have graduated from Brown and to have had that as the foundation to prepare her for who she has become, which just makes her vocabulary and ability to address the issues of the world and, and even so much as, as a friend, you know, yeah. having the, um, the intellect and the ability to find the words. Right. Um, I, I'm really, uh, I've always admired that about her. And, and as she's grown in prominence, that seems to have really suited her quite well. I think she had ex- great examples because no matter who her mother was for the world in the captions of stage presence, it's who she was at home, right? So that is what really nurtures a family. You know, when she talked about, you know, we don't sit on the couch or the chairs that are provided, they may be all, all arranged. We all kind of just sort of like lay on the floor. We, we are comfortable at home and drive the distance just to be there, you know, with one another. It was really wonderful to watch and see her as an adult woman. Mm-hmm. I know the journey. You know, there's a long side. We're, we're watching different young um, Black Americans over the decades find their place in this world that's predetermined um, in the entertainment field, notwithstanding the restaurant industry or the hospitality industry, but get to a place where you do thrive, you do manage, and we're all in parallel lanes with one another, and they do intersect listening to the two of you share areas in which you intersected and it didn't end, right? Mm-hmm. So it could have been in, in the 90s and it was throughout the journey of your restaurants. And now she's who she is in this context and she acknowledges um, your evolutions as well. That's who we are in this in this culture, in this world, in this space, that sometimes we'll be in different paths, but we have to figure out where do we intersect mm-hmm. and how authentic are those moments so that even if there's another pause, we know when we come back together again, there'll be an authentic intersection. We we pick up the conversation right where we left off, so That's to right. speak. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Well, thank you for that. 
Ambassador Shabazz, it's always a pleasure. And yes, uh, what's the weather like in Louisville? Is it starting to be spring? It's actually pretty nice. It's actually pretty nice. You know, the Derby was not too long ago and people were doing their kind of spaced fractional engagements. We're looking forward to 2022 and following um, May, the Derby is June, which is generally Muhammad Ali festival. So this year won't be very busy, but next year will, and it will time with his 80th birthday. So we're hoping that it doesn't just stop and start with the horses, but that we kind of have a people's Derby next year. Yeah, that would be that would be phenomenal. But yeah. you know, we're, we're a year away from really yes. feeling like we can gather in, in any large numbers publicly. Right. But uh, we look forward to, to that event. Yeah. Well, enjoy spring in Louisville. And uh, I hope to see you in person real soon. Very, Thank very soon. And let people know that this is uh, that June is Black Music Month. So tune in, you know, pull, we talk about your playlists. You know, load them up. Mr. Glover said that he likes old music and we talk about contemporary music. Let's learn about it. Let's be, have, become ethnomusicologists during the month of June for Black Music Month. No musicologists. Well, we are going to have a corner table talk uh, playlist coming up. So yes. you just hey, further yes. inspired me. That's Ambassador great. Shabazz, thank you as always and see you soon. See you soon. Corner Table Talk is hosted by Brad Johnson. Produced by Brad and Linda Ailes Johnson. Coordinating producer, Lauren Turner. Theme music, Life Goes On by Bryce Vine. Executive producers, Omar Thompson, Andrew Kalb, and Ken Johnson. Find the Corner Table Talk podcast wherever you get your podcast. Follow, subscribe, rate, and leave a comment. Corner Table Talk is a Say It Loud Network production.